breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to another episode this week of Reform This on the Blaze Podcast Network. Well, I hope you're all getting ready for Thanksgiving, seeing the family. Isn't it great to have a Thanksgiving coming up with no lectures from public health officials and from the Dr. Fauci's of the world telling us how far away we can be and whether we can see our own family members and others. It's regardless of what you feel about the science, it's always better to follow your heart, isn't it? Follow your family, get together. Hopefully you're able to enjoy this holiday of gratitude with not only a sense of gratitude for your health and happiness, but also for what I believe is a hopeful future for our country and a hopeful future for all the battles that we're waging ideologically. You know, I I felt like it was just beyond essential to have a little conversation about Thanksgiving. You know, nothing's sacrosanct, nothing is sacred anymore as the squad which uh, gives them a little more dignity than I think they deserve, but the radicals of Ilhan Omar and Presley and uh, AOC and and that whole group, if you will, of radical progressivists in the House call themselves squad-giving, squads-giving. And uh, I guess if you look that up, that's that's an old term. I didn't didn't realize that. Uh, But as you then follow their social media, you see... They're going to use the opportunities this week to lecture us about Palestinian occupation by the Israelis or the rights of the Black Lives Matter movement and and other things that, again, can be debatable. But when we have a holiday that's founded on the Thanksgiving that is what it is to be an American, what it is to be thankful, and that it's one of the oldest holidays that is in many ways secular— and doesn't recognize any particular faith, but recognizes things that unite us. But that's not good enough, because the the Islamists and the far left, who, in their own way, the left has become a religion of themselves, they exploit whatever are the things that unite us nationally, and even humbly, like Thanksgiving, in order to push forth, to push forth an agenda of political nature. And naturally, there's no opportunity that they do not bypass to hijack things that are trying to bring us together, cultural moments that we share internally as families and as a nation, and they hijack it in order to patronize us with lessons that they assume we all need to learn. This last week, our country was glued to a court case as Kyle Rittenhouse's case uh, was heard before a jury of his peers. And in Kenosha, Wisconsin, it was day after day we were hearing about the judge's comments uh, from um, a a litany of various incidences that uh, if you were following the case closely, you would have gotten a much different narrative than if you were just following the media's reports of the case. And from whether you view it as prosecutorial misconduct, incompetence, negligence, 
whatever it might be, Rittenhouse's defense basically won the day. And if you believe in our justice system, the truth won the day. There was no lies perpetrated in the, during the case. Yes, there were two individuals killed, but the court proved that they were at the hands of self-defense. And the jury came back after a couple days of deliberations, a number of hours, and unanimously gave a verdict on all the counts of not guilty. Now, the reason I bring it up here is I'm not going to go through the details of the case and what was legitimate and uh, how justice was meted, but the bottom line is it was justice. And certainly, as, as you would have expected with the narrative coming that over the last months from the beginning that Kyle Rittenhouse was supposedly, according to the left-sided media, that he was a murderer and had gone come from out of state uh, and with an intent to kill. None of that was proven during the entire case that the prosecution, to the tunes of millions of dollars of investment, was able to muster. And yet, somehow, the cartoons, the vilification of Kyle Rittenhouse, even continued after his innocence was determined by a jury because it doesn't matter if they're defaming him. It doesn't matter. All that matters is that the narrative that there's only one set of victims in America, that everybody else are perpetrators and aggressors, is all that matters to the left. Whether the victims today, be they Muslims, be they those of a particular race or whatever it might be, the bottom line is, is that when it doesn't fit the narrative, you exclaim unfairness and you say that it was not justice. So say what you will. Yes, there are problems in our justice system. Yes, there is some racism that exists that needs to be corrected. It was interesting that this week there was another case from 2017 of an African-American that murdered four officers that raided his house and killed his girlfriend and others and he was found to be innocent of all charges that didn't get any headlines did it no different than winsome sears didn't get any headlines in the left when the african-american won the election in virginia a couple weeks ago as lieutenant governor because when nothing, when it doesn't fit the narrative of minorities as victims, you will not hear it. It will be pushed under the carpet and it will not allow it to shape what is our American culture. But our American culture is instead shaped by pop culture media that insists on making us all apologize for things from centuries ago. Things that, yes, might need still some corrective ideas here and there but at the end of the day it should not overwhelm what our bandwidth is moving forward we should move forward and not backwards we should look through the lens forward and not the lens backwards and we should define our families and our country in a positive way as we come to thanksgiving and not in a negative way we have a lot to celebrate our justice system proves again and again that when it gets to the people, as tough as it was, they could have easily set aside some of the truth and 
done the easy route because they were concerned about violence breaking out in the streets. Because remember, the entire case was about individuals who were shooting at each other because there was not enough police on the streets. And I think now that a jury has proven Kyle innocent, it'll be interesting to see what follows with civil suits and otherwise related to police not providing protection to property and and uh, um, and also media defaming an individual as a murderer. Some quotations have said that the Sandman case, remember that was the young Christian group that was in D.C. that was incorrectly identified as, not only incorrectly, that was egregiously identified as bigots because the video showed a picture that was not actually the reality of what was happening between the two, the American Indian elderly gentleman and Mr. Sandman, and ultimately CNN, Washington Post, and others paid millions. We don't know, an undisclosed amount to Sandman and his family. But we have a lot to be thankful for. Our country will move forward. I, I can only move forward believing that our cup is half full and that that other empty part will continue to fill and not fight us. And ultimately, righteousness will win. And I think one of the, one of the most amazing things to remember this week as we... My final thought about the, the case last week is that there's a, there's a philosopher that has said that there is no such thing as social justice. Justice is about the meeting out of appropriate understanding and appropriate adjudication of an individual's rights when they are questioned by the majority, by the system, and that justice is something that is handed blindly in the face of the truth to an individual, not to a community. And ultimately, many scholars have said that social justice is a, is a uh, um, deceptive concept used to collectivize groups and make it seem as if the collective state has rights. The collective state has a conscience as opposed to the individuals running the state and running the judicial system. And I think we've learned a lot in the past few weeks, at least some have. Well, let's go on to a few other stories. I want to give you a little update on the activism to expose the crimes against humanity done by the Chinese Communist Party against the Uyghurs. The genocide continues. The encampment of Muslims being forced to convert, burn their Qurans, eat pork, whatever it might be, to reject their religion continues. And for the most part, the establishment turns a blind eye to it. And this week, as if it wasn't enough, I've talked to you before about LeBron James and his callous, uh, his callous indifference. And uh, we've also talked about how proud I am of Ennis Cantor and how, as a Boston Celtic, he has stepped up and rejected the urge, the natural tendency sometimes to forget about doing what's best or what's right and 
just to make sure that you continue to get as much income, as much millions as possible. Now, I'm a bit surprised that there haven't been more NBA players to come to his support. In fact, LeBron, LeBron James, King James, and I think the, the King James acronym really applies. He, he does remind me of the monarchs, the, the corrupt monarchs across the Middle East. LeBron James said he will not give his energy to Ennis Cantor's criticism of him and Nike. He said earlier this week that he won't give uh, uh, the time of day to recent criticism from Celtic center Ennis Cantor, who had his usual social media attacks on those who were corruptly providing oxygen and complicity with the crimes against humanity done by the Chinese government. King James has a relationship with Nike and the company's alleged forced labor practices in China. LeBron spoke a few days ago after they lost to the Celtics and dropped the Lakers to less than 500 for the season. Oh, he's even losing on the court. He said, quote, I think if you know me, you know I don't really give too many people my energy, and he's definitely not someone I will give my energy to, he said. Trying to use my name to create an opportunity for himself. Oh, look how narcissistic this is, that he's using his, that Ennis Cantor is using LeBron James's name to get a name for himself. But yet he has enough energy to rake in the cash and the millions of Nike being sold in China, products being put together, distributed through slave labor and otherwise in China, and the NBA's contracts and others. He definitely said won't comment much on that, if any. That will be where I lay that at. He's always kind of had a word or two to say in my direction as a man. If you got an issue with somebody, you really come up to him. He had his opportunity tonight. I seen him in the hallway. He walked right by me. Wow, so LeBron not only is a narcissist, he made it personal. Actually, Cantor's not going to tell you anything. Usually this is the way I behaved also, is that these Islamists love to pull you aside privately and tell you things all behind the scenes. That Oh, you, you really, we, we, we can do this quietly. We don't have to make a public flail. No, those conversations are useless. All they try to do is coerce you into silence so that the status quo can continue. So LeBron has it backwards. That's because he's a narcissist. He has it backwards. It's actually what people say publicly that matters, and what they say privately is just small talk. And it would probably be consistent. If it's consistent with what you say publicly, it shouldn't matter. It's honest. Cantor's been outspoken, as the media said, on corruption related to the regime in his native Turkey, has spoken out against the Chinese president, Xi Ping, calling him, I'm sorry, Jinping, calling him a brutal dictator and advocating for a free Tibet. Cantor criticized James and Nike for shoes that are allegedly produced by slave labor through Chinese companies. He wrote... He wrote in uh, Twitter, money over morals for the king. 
sad and disgusting how these athletes pretend they care about social justice. And again, he likes the term social justice, that's fine. I prefer just justice. In response, the Chinese government stopped streaming Boston Celtics games. Oh no, the Boston fans from the Chinese Communist Party are not going to see their game. In October, Cantor led a rally in front of the Capitol, Capitol Hill calling on China to stop Uyghur forced labor and urging the U.S. Congress to pass the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act. Cantor offered to book plane tickets for him and Nike owner Phil Knight to visit China in a tweet saying, We can try to visit these slave labor camps and you can see it with your own eyes. He offered for James and Jordan to come along too and shared photos of shoes reading, Modern day slavery made with slave labor. Hypocrite Nike. And no more excuses. So, hats off to Ennis Cantor again, but I do think that uh, the belligerence the disrespect of LeBron James, the lack of ability to even say, throw even positive words about how difficult it might be for him, etc. Not hardly any respect shows the callous indifference of the left establishment and how comfortable they feel in the establishment when somebody not in the establishment tries to shake them, especially a highly visible player. Now LeBron and his narcissistic pathology doesn't see Ennis as a threat, obviously, because he's not, uh, I guess, a, a, a massive celebrity or the overrated player that LeBron James is, whatever it might be. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out. And now an additional footnote, as if you thought it was just Nike and the NBA, massive corporate America is all in and supporting the Chinese government and the CCP. This week, the Marriott Hotel, yes, the Marriott Hotel in Prague declined to host a conference of activists and leaders from China's Uyghur diaspora this month, citing political neutrality. An email shared with Axios.com announced. Why does it matter about Prague? Well, the Chinese government has condemned the World Uyghur Congress, which has attempted to rally global attention to the genocide in Xinjiang. The decision to reject the conference reflects China's growing ability to extend its authoritarian control beyond its borders by making clear to corporations in the United States that crossing the party's red lines will be bad for business. Who are the World Uyghur Congress? It's mainly Uyghurs living in exile and advocates for the rights of those who remain in the Xinjiang region in western China, where upwards of one million people have been held in internment camps. 200 delegates were supposed to meet in Prague from November 12 to 14 to elect the organization's new leadership and hold discussions with politicians, academics, and civil society. The Prague Marriott declined to host the conference. And they went all in, by the way. Melissa Freilich Flood, Marriott's senior vice president for global corporate communications, told Axios the hotel would be contacting the group to apologize as the hotel's response was not consistent with our policies. The group had, the the Uyghur group had reached out to multiple hotels for bids and to discuss the ability to have the conference. And nobody mentioned any problem with neutrality. It's not about neutrality, is it? Neutral? Human rights? Neutral? Are we, are we neutral on that? 
Would they host the Nazis in Prague? Would they host neo-Nazis? And yet, they will not host a Uyghur conference. Shows you where we are. Story goes much deeper than that, but bottom line is, is that it's more and more apparent that there are no corporations, large, international, that are not in the pocket of the Chinese government. Now let's move a little bit to the world of the Islamist infiltrators. And where have they infiltrated lately? It's interesting. This story was buried in the entertainment section at Yahoo News. The entertainment section of Yahoo News. What story is that? Quote, the Justice Department charges two Iranians who pretended to be Proud Boys. This was at the January 6th uh, insurrection. That sent Republican officials a fake ballot fraud video, and threatened tens of thousands of Democratic voters. The Department of Justice announced the indictments of two Iranian nationals on Thursday for foreign election interference. The duo posed as Proud Boys, sending a fake video to Republican officials that shadowed, or I'm sorry, that showed ballot tampering. They also sent emails threatening violence to tens of thousands of Democratic voters. So again, the Proud Boys were the ones that were implicated in the January 6th riots, and now it appears that they were infiltrated by Iranian espionage, the Islamists of the Khomeinists, that government. So again, this is a common, this is a common weapon of our, our threats globally, whether it was uh, the, the walkers back half a century ago or however long ago that was that were doing espionage for the Soviets that infiltrated the far right uh, KKK and others or whoever it might be it is very common for infiltrators to exploit radical groups prominent groups in order to achieve their ends and disrupt America and disrupt our security operation. I bring it to your attention because remember the narratives about the biggest threats to the United States are in far-right white supremacy, etc. And yet the jihadists, fueled by massive regimes like the Iranian regime, the Taliban, the Assads, Muslim Brotherhood movements, Wahhabis and others, these regimes are continuing to try to disrupt the West and disrupt our security. So, uh, again, proportionality is so important when we look at assessing and, and acting against threats that exist out there. And uh, I'm sorry, the, the, the sense that somehow right now white supremacy is the greatest threat to America is, is so off base from the reality of what it is that threatens who we are. As, as millions flow through the borders, as Islamists continue to spread, if you watch global media bandwidth of the Islamists from Al Jazeera to Press TV in Iran to Russian TV, etc., that biggest threat, that threat matrix doesn't even cross over to white supremacism. It might in a few areas, but not anywhere near most of that bandwidth. There was a little change in Syria this week. 
that I think uh, highlights sort of what uh, the shift that's happening with the power structure across the Middle East. I'm still, by the way, trying to figure out the, the Emirates. I think you'll find that the Emirates now have not only met with the Iranians in, Te- in Tehran at the climate conference, meeting with their ministers and trying to grow closer. They met with Assad, and yet they're one of the few countries with the courage to have signed the Abraham Accords recognizing Israel. So the promiscuity ideologically there, meeting with Iran about climate change and energy cooperation, and obviously it's mostly economic, it's kleptocratic, if you will, but that doesn't make any sense, does it? Still trying to figure that one out. But there was a little thing that happened in Syria that I think should explain some of the shift. In the 20th century, you had many secular dictators that across the Middle East, from Egypt, Jamal Abdel Nasser, to Iraq, that ended up being Saddam Hussein to Syria, ended up being Hafez Assad, which were military, nationalist, socialist, Arabist powers, parties, like the Nazis, if you will. And they were Sunni, Sunni extraction of the interpretation of Islam, if you will. But yet, when it suited them, they worked with the Shia, they employed them into their military structure. and But yet, somehow, as the Soviets in the Cold War had an affinity for the Shia side of that equation, the West, America, had an affinity for the Sunni side of the dictatorship equation. Now, as I talk about in my book, A Battle for the Soul of Islam, I've always felt embarrassed, horrified, by how we said the enemy of our enemy is our friend and ultimately created a system of foreign policy doctrines that basically cozied up to some dictators in a game of thrones, promoting them as our, our allies, when in fact they committed crimes against humanity also internally. Now, you could say at the time that that was because we were sort of playing a we were playing a, a, um, our cards that we were dealt against the greatest national security threat at the time, which was the Soviet Union. And then when it fell apart, many of us said, well, hopefully this will change and allow us to become more moral in our approach to the Middle East and Muslim-majority countries. That didn't really happen, did it? And if anything, we've, since the Arab Awakening in 2011, which actually finally started to tell us that perhaps the people will take control of their own societies and own governments that we actually now realize that Islamists were going to come. And again, we wanted to get back in the Game of Thrones games and rather than let them work their way through revolutions and figure it out, uh, we let the Russians, the Chinese, the Iranians and others to manipulate these countries that were having revolutions. And the story goes on. But this week, what happened? This week, Assad, the Assad family, the uh, Syrian regime, if you will, has long been dominated by Alawites. Alawites are a a a hetero uh, um, a heterodoxy, heterodoxical sect of the Shia. They basically are Shia, expecting a twelfth Imam. Now they have a lot of other secretive aspects to their network. 
within Syria. They ascended within the predominantly Sunni military of the Ba'ath Party, Ba'ath being liberation or socialist fascist party of the Syrian government for decades after the Ba'ath took over in 1963. But for a long time, the Sunni faith in Syria was led by a tool of the Syrian government, the tool of the Assad and the Ba'ath Party. Now, there were some well-placed Sunnis in that government, in that military, but ultimately the military was dominated, especially at the, at the flag officer levels, by, by Shia radicals, by uh, Assad sympathizers that slowly grew over the past 20 years to have a significant affinity for Iran. And that affinity somehow seemed to vanish for the cleric, such as Sheikh Kaftaro, that for a long time was the Sunni tool of the mosques and the Sunni infrastructure of Syria. While he claimed to be religious, and I, I can't tell you how many American Syrians I've talked to that uh, said, oh, I learned Islam from the Kuftaro school of interfaith, etc. And most honest Syrians would want to throw up when they hear that. Because Kuftaro turned a blind eye, got his paycheck as a cleric from cleansing the crimes of humanity done by the Assad regime before and during the revolution. And you may say, and some may say, well, he had no choice. That's all he had to do. Well, he could have at least not become the prayer leader for the mafia of Syria. But he was Sunni. Now we get a story this week. that, And remember, the reason there was always a Sunni cleric is the majority of Muslims in Syria are Sunni. 70%. 10% are Alawite and the other 10% and to 20% are all various sects from Ismaili and, and uh, others. This week, Al Jazeera is reporting, and as are other news agencies, that the Syrian president has abolished the position of the Grand Mufti. His decree effectively sacked Syria's Grand Mufti Ahmed Hassoun, the highest Islamic authority in Syria. It delegated the Council of Jurisprudence Scholars tasks that were previously entrusted to the Mufti, including setting the start and end dates of the holy month of Ramadan and declaring religious decrees or fatwa. The decree also abolished Article 35 of a law regulating the power of jurisprudential council and the work of the Ministry of Endowments and Religious Affairs under the Grand Mufti and strengthened the power of the council headed by the Minister of Endowments. It forced Hassoun the highest Islamic authority in Syria, into retirement. Basically, you can talk about why this happened. Kaftaro's gone, and others are gone. Bottom line is, is Syria has effectively become a client state of Iran. It wasn't going to be long that they could no longer tolerate having a cleric run the religious system in Syria that was Sunni. Is that discrimination? Nah, you know, one mafia family against another who they're, they're all corrupt, evil individuals. I have no tears to shed for Hassoun. But the bottom line is, is you're seeing a consolidation of power now where the Shia are 
working not only hand in glove with Assad as they have, but now openly doing so. You saw in Tehran, the previous hanging judge now has become the president. There's no longer this fake separation, this illusion that the Islamic Supreme Council is separate from the presidency in Iran. Everybody knew that they took orders from the uh, Supreme Council, and now the previous judge is now president. So there's a consolidation of a Shia clerical power across the Shia crescent that goes through Iraq, Syria, and into Lebanon. We see that in Lebanon now with Hezbollah taking significant control. So I think these little moves, for those who are aware of the culture and what happens there, should be very educational about the reality of what's happening. Well, folks, it's time for Thanksgiving. It's time to join your families, take a little time off, enjoy uh, your loved ones, hug them, and be close to them. Thank you for being part of this program. Thank you for listening. Share this with your friends. Find me online at Dr. Zudi Jasser, D-R-Z-U-H-D-I-J-A-S-S-E-R, at Twitter, on Twitter, and also at Reform This Radio. And find us uh, at the Blaze Radio Podcast on iTunes and elsewhere. Share this with your friends and uh, tell them if they want to find a, a little dose of reality, pragmatism, honesty when it comes to Islamism, reforms needed within the Islamic communities, the synergy with the far left and uh, political Islamic movements, uh, a, a voice against identity movements, race-based uh, 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 race baiting, if you will. Tell them to listen to Reform This on the Blaze Podcast Network. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network.